0: invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we will be in verses 8 to 15 today, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 15, and please stand with me if you are able to for the reading of God's word. 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works, May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. This is one of the best times of the year for those of you who are basketball fans. The NBA playoffs have descended upon California for the past few weeks. Bets have been made. Hours have been spent watching games. Families have been divided all over the game of basketball. It's been a fun time watching California teams battle out in these playoff series. I'll admit that the TV has been on in the evenings at our home a lot more recently. And what I like to watch most during this time of the year are the ways that these teams play and adjust to one another over the course of a series. And what becomes quite noticeable if you watch game after game of the same teams playing each other are the strengths and weaknesses of each team and of their key players. Much of a team's success in a series depends upon the coach and and his game plan and the way he utilizes his players. Uh, on good basketball teams, every player knows his or her role. It's the job of the coach to communicate those roles, but it's up to the players to accept those roles and do what's best for the team. Shooters have to shoot. Defenders have to defend, rebounders need to go grab those rebounds, hustle players need to bring the energy. And when you watch the playoffs, you see this happening in, in real time. If a good shooter is open and doesn't shoot, people start yelling at their TVs, shoot it! But if a big guy who normally just rebounds start checking, starts checking up threes, people start to groan. Those of you who are Warriors fans understand this clearly. You want Steph Curry to shoot, and you want Draymond Green to pass, and you want Kavon Looney to screen and rebound. And while all those guys might like to score, everyone who plays basketball wants to score, they willingly take on the roles given to them because it's been proven to win them Championships. Now, when they're playing a pickup game or even some regular season games, it's probably fine for Kavan to shoot a three or Draymond to take several jumpers. But in important games, at the most critical times, they step back into their roles because it's best for the team and for their success. In the NBA playoffs, you get to see the importance of properly defined roles in the context of a team. When skilled players embrace their roles and execute the game plan of a good coach, good things happen. Well, today I want you to realize that God is the the coach of our church, and he has given you each a role to play. The question is whether you embrace God's game plan or try to wing it on your own. As we return to 1 Timothy, we're going to look at some of the roles God has defined for men and women in the church. Now, I recognize that this is a controversial topic in our day and age. We live in a time in which the very existence of gender is debated, and freedom and independence are highly valued, and, and women have been viciously taken advantage of by men. All these factors make the Bible's instructions on the differences between men and women unpalatable to many. The current cultural winds have eroded the once- formidable rock of gender and gender roles in society. But as Christians, we should understand that culture isn't a trustworthy guide for how we're to live our lives. We are called to build our lives upon the bedrock of Scripture instead of the shifting sands of public opinion. And This isn't an easy task, but we must understand that God has designed men and women for specific roles in his church. And we need the courage to obey his commands in the midst of a a culture, I should say, in the midst of a culture that recoils at them. We need to trust that God's game plan is best. Now, there's a lot to unpack in the verses before us and not a lot of time this morning that I hope to give you a sense of this important passage for today. And I pray that you'll receive God's word with humility and And a desire to obey. There are three roles mentioned in this passage for men and women in the church that I want to point out to you. Three roles for men and women in the church. And the first is that men are to lead the church in prayer. Men are to lead the church in prayer. Paul writes in verse 8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray. Now, this is a continuation of verses 1 through 7, where Paul urged the church to pray for the world, to pray for all people, and including kings and those in high places, that we might live a peaceful and quiet life so that the gospel might have the ability to spread. Now, here in verse 8, Paul specifically calls upon men in the church to pray. and The word he uses is desire, but as an apostle, this desire of his is more than just a passing wish. It has behind it the idea of an apostolic command. He is instructing men in the church to lead out in prayer. And and this is a universal request. Paul isn't just addressing one specific church in one specific location. He writes that he desires that men should pray in every place. And back in those days, we know that the church met in all kinds of places. And so Paul is saying that wherever the church gathers, when the church gathers, he wants men to to pray. And we know that Paul is talking about the ministry of the gathered church because in this chapter he addresses prayer and learning and teaching and exercising authority. So he's talking about the ministry of the church. And then in chapter 3, he talks about the offices of the church. He addresses the topic of of elders and of deacons. And he writes in chapter 3, verse 15, that he was writing all these things so that Timothy and the church may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So in the church, Paul wants men to pray. Please note that women are not excluded from praying when the church gathers. In 1 Corinthians 11.5, Paul mentions women praying in the church. Women should also pray when the church meets, but He calls out men here because he wants men to take the initiative in leading the church to pray for the advance of the gospel. And he wants men to be praying out of lives that are characterized by holiness. He writes in verse 8 that he wants men to pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. The emphasis here is on holiness and character. Angry men, men who like to pick fights or get into arguments, these are not the kind of men that should be leading the church in prayer. Right? Men should be leading the church, having lived holy lives. Now, do men have to lift their hands when they pray? Not necessarily. We, we see in Scripture that there are many appropriate postures for prayer. Uh, the psalmists call us to bow down and to kneel before the Lord. This is how Daniel prayed in the Old Testament— It's how Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Some men, like Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Job, fell completely to the ground before the Lord. Others stood in prayer, and and others lifted their hands. The lifting of hands was one way that holy men brought their requests before the Lord. I don't think our posture is is the primary thing in prayer. Our attitude and heart and and character is is what's most important. But certainly, as men, we should not feel embarrassed or ashamed to kneel or to stand or to fall or to lift our hands to the Lord as we lead others in prayer. We shouldn't do this for show, but if this is the natural and, and the desired expression of your heart as you pray to the Lord, then lead out and pray with hands lifted high. And the first role that Paul identifies is that men are to lead the church in prayer. Second, we find in verses 9 to 10 that women are to beautify the church with good works. The second role for men and women in the church is that women are to beautify the church with good works. In in verse 9, Paul writes, likewise also. And so he means here, I Also desire something from women. Just like I desire that men should pray in the church, I also likewise desire that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. Well, Paul is saying that women should carefully choose their clothes. Women should carefully choose their clothes. When you dress for church ladies, you should dress respectably. Now, that could be subjective based on each individual So Paul clarifies what he means. He writes that women should adore themselves with modesty and self-control. This means being free from flashiness and showiness and ostentation. It means being free from enticement and seduction. It also reflects self-control. There's good judgment involved in a godly woman's clothing choices. It means not necessarily always being on trend. If what is on trend is over the top, or too revealing, or too attention-grabbing. And, and Paul gives some examples to flesh out his instructions here. He singles out braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Now This is just a sampling of some of the things that women wore to bring attention to themselves in Ephesus. Paul, Paul wasn't trying to start a list of banned items. We, we see in other places of Scripture, like... Song of Solomon, that gold and jewelry are acceptable forms of dress for women. God also instructed very expensive garments to be made for his priests in Exodus 28. Gold and pearls are all over the place in heaven. And so the Bible does not ban these things. Paul was just giving an example of things women would commonly wear with the intent to draw attention to themselves in those days. Elaborate hairstyles and extremely expensive dresses were worn by wealthy women who idolized their own ex- uh, appearance, and many have suggested that these kinds of items were what the temple prostitutes in Ephesus also wore to seduce men. Well, Paul was using some tangible examples of ways in which the women of that day were tempted to draw attention to themselves. He did this to shepherd the women in the church away from that kind of attitude. Instead, women should be characterized by modesty and self-control, and and their clothing should reflect that. Okay, so ladies, when you go shopping or you get ready for Sunday, you know, ask yourselves what's trendy and what's fashionable. I think all the men in the church would encourage that. But it's more important to ask yourself, will will my clothing needlessly distract others? Do I have the right heart in wearing this? Is it respectable in God's eyes? We could argue that some men should ask themselves those questions as well, but I think Paul addresses this to women because he knew this was and continues to be a common temptation. So women should carefully choose their clothes. But what's even more important is that women should consistently do good works. Women should consistently do good works. What should people notice about the women who go to church? Well, they shouldn't be drawn to what they are or aren't wearing. Instead, they should be drawn to the good that they're doing. How should women adorn themselves? Well, Paul answers this in verse 10, with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Uh, We get a glimpse of what Paul was referring to here if we just consider the New Testament church. If you were to read through the book of Acts, you would find several women highlighted in that book for their godliness. And if you go to Acts 9.36, you would see that Dorcas was known for her acts of charity. In Acts 16.14, Lydia was known for her hospitality. In Acts 18, Priscilla was known for her discipleship. The Bible says nothing about the looks of these women or what they wore. It just tells us what they did for the Lord. And Paul is reminding all Christian women that the, that the way to real beauty is not through clothing, it's not through cosmetics, it's through Christ-like behavior. You become more beautiful by your good works and your godliness, not by your good wardrobe. Well, the church is meant to be a salon filled with beautiful women. You know, but they aren't getting highlights or manicures or facelifts. They're changing diapers, they're serving meals. They're lifting up the discouraged. A true female beauty isn't found on Netflix or TikTok or the latest pop group. True feminine beauty should be found in the church, should be found in the godliness of the woman of the church. And I think that should be great news for you women. You know, As you get older, your real beauty shouldn't diminish, like the world tells us. You know, I know some of you have hit your 30s, some of you have hit your 40s recently, or some of you are much older than that. Don't despair. Right? If you are walking with the Lord, you're looking better and better than you think, okay? Your real beauty is increasing as you pile up good works done for the Lord. And so focus on your relationship with the Lord and your service and your character more than what you look like physically. Spend more time looking at the the mirror of God's Word than the mirror in your bathroom. And if you are a single man, know that this is what you should be looking for as well. Look for a woman full of good works, and don't allow yourself to fall into that mindset, oh, she's great, and she's godly, and she's a good friend, but, but I'm just not attracted to her. That's likely because you're blinded to true beauty. You know, learn to see who is really beautiful in the church. Married men, you should also be helping women in our church cultivate this kind of mindset. Praise your wife for the way she fulfills her duties in your home and in the church and in your community. Thank her for dressing modestly and with self control. People go to fashion shows and movie premieres and big cultural events to see beautiful people, but real feminine beauty should be found first and foremost. In the church. The women are to beautify the church with good works. Oh, so men are to lead the church in prayer. Women are to beautify the church with good works. And, and finally, women are to engage in the church with a submissive spirit. That's the third role we find outlined in this passage. Women are to engage in the church with a submissive spirit. And they are instructed to do this by, by learning. Now, Paul writes in verse 11, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, some believe that women shouldn't learn in those days, but Paul was very much for the education of sisters in the church. He called upon them to engage in the church by being learners, students of God's word. And he focused on the manner in which women should learn. They should learn with Or they should learn quietly with all submissiveness. Paul isn't just saying, learn. He's saying, learn in this way. If I tell my children, please practice piano now, I I get uh, all kinds of behavior that loosely resemble what I might consider practice. You know, practicing with a snack in one hand, practicing while brushing your teeth you know, practicing by speeding through the music as quickly as possible when the song is in Largo, you know. But if I say, please practice piano diligently now, what I mean is much clearer. That's what Paul is doing here. He's not just wanting the woman in the church to pick up a few tidbits about Christianity through passive listening. He's calling upon them to learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, what does that mean? Well, well, the word quietly here can mean silently, but it likely means with a quiet spirit. Well, Paul has, has just used that word in verse 2 of this chapter to talk about how we should pray that our leaders govern in such a way so that we might lead a peaceful and quiet life. Not a life of absolute silence, but a life that is characterized by a quiet demeanor. And and we see this same word used in 1 Peter 3, 4 when Peter calls upon wives to let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And so women should learn with a, with a quiet demeanor that reflects gentleness, that reflects peace. The example of Mary who sat at the feet of Jesus as he taught is, is a good picture of this. A woman should also learn with all submissiveness. Now Based on the context, this submissiveness is toward men in the church who are teaching and exercising authority. This submissiveness isn't the surrender of one's mind and one's judgment. Women are still to test the scriptures like good Bereans, but they shouldn't have an attitude of wanting to usurp authority in the church. This idea of a quiet and submissive spirit is clarified further in verse 12. So women shouldn't only engage in the church by learning submissively, but they should also engage by not teaching or exercising authority over men. Women should engage in the church by not teaching or exercising authority over men. In verse 12, Paul writes, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, teaching here refers to the authoritative transmission of God's Word in the context of the church. It refers, at a minimum, to preaching during the worship service of a church, but also potentially to other gatherings of a church. Now, this doesn't mean that women should never teach in the church. The Bible makes it clear in Titus 2 that women are to teach other women. Women should also be teaching children like Timothy's own mother and grandma did to him. A woman can disciple others in more private settings, like Priscilla did with her husband Aquila in Acts 18. And women can give informal advice and encouragement and teach in a plethora of other ways. Now, Paul also prohibited women from exercising authority over men. This means that women shouldn't rule or govern men in the church, and, and it's a reference to what elders are meant to do. So, women aren't meant to serve as elders in the church. Well, to be clear, Paul isn't just writing about women not serving as pastors or elders. Some people have taken this verse that way. They believe that women can do all things in the church as long as they don't have the official title of a pastor or hold the office of an elder. As long as a woman serves under the authority of the elders, then she can preach and teach and and lead as much as she desires. And the problem with this is that Paul isn't just writing about an office here. He's writing about functions in the church that men are called to perform. Teaching authoritatively and exercising authority are tasks that God desires men to perform. Again, there are so many other ministries and ways that women uh, can and should engage in in the church. But teaching and exercising authority over men are two that are prohibited. Now, some have suggested that Paul just wrote this to deal with a specific situation in Ephesus. And and they hypothesized that women were teaching false doctrines, so Paul was prohibited. Uh, Or they hypothesized that women were teaching false doctrines, so Paul was prohibiting women from teaching for that reason. He didn't want women to, to teach what was being falsely passed around. Or they say that Paul was just talking about improper authority in the church, so women shouldn't exercise improper authority over men. But these suggestions require reading into the passage what's actually not there. Paul is giving a a universal and timeless command to women in the church. And the clearest indication for this is found in verses 13 and 14. Well, Paul anticipated that there would be objections to this, so he provides biblical and theological grounding for his commands. Now, How can we possibly accept this restriction of roles for women in the church? Well, first Paul calls us to look past culture to creation in verse 13. Look past culture to creation. Our culture may say that there should be no distinction between what men and women are able to do, but from the very beginning, God has designed differences into the roles of men and women. And Paul writes in verse 13, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. This is a reference back to Genesis 2, when Paul is calling upon the created order to support his prohibition of women teaching and exercising authority over men. And he's saying that Adam was formed first, he was the firstborn. That's an Old Testament concept that afforded him special privileges and responsibilities. He was formed first to have authority over the animal kingdom. and God designed Eve to come after to be his helper and supporter. The reason why men are called to teach and to exercise authority in the church and women are not goes all the way back to creation and the original good design of God. And that's why these instructions to women in the church can't just be limited to the church in Ephesus back in the first century. These instructions are rooted in a universal truth about the different roles that God has given men and women. So first, Paul calls us to look past culture to creation. Second, he reminds us to consider the nature of the fall. Consider the nature of the fall. In verse 14, Paul writes in, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, let me be clear that Paul isn't saying here that Adam as a man was less likely to be deceived than Eve because women are are more gullible than men. Instead, what he's saying is that Satan went through Eve to get humanity to fall. He bypassed the God-designed leader And went to Eve tempting her deceiving her to take the lead on eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil Adam abdicated his role and Eve filled the gap but the result of this departure from their roles is what brought sin and transgression into the world if you were to go to Romans 5 you would you would find there that Paul lays the blame for this initial sin on Adam He writes that sin came into the world through one man. It was Adam's lack of leadership that allowed Eve to be deceived and supplant the good roles that God had set out for them. And and so, so Paul is saying that men and women in the church should have their particular roles. Men should lead in the church, and women should be willing to submit because this is how God designed it before sin entered into the world. It was only when those roles got reversed, that sin gained a foothold. And the implication is that when women preach or exercise authority over men in the church today, they run the risk of committing the same sin that occurred in the Garden of Eden. How does one accept the restriction of women's roles in the church? Well, first, look past culture to creation. And second, Consider the nature of the fall. Finally, in verse 15, Paul calls upon women to embrace the goodness of femininity. How does one accept the restriction of women's roles in the church while embrace the goodness of femininity? Paul writes, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, there are a ton of different interpretations of this verse. Uh, First, we know that this can't refer to women being spiritually saved through the act of giving birth to children, because not all women give birth, and that would make salvation dependent upon good work. That goes against the testimony of Scripture. Uh, Some people think this verse refers to a woman being physically preserved as they give birth to children. In other words, despite the fact that sin entered the world, and there was a curse upon women for—and for, it would make uh, giving birth quite difficult. Women can at least know that they will make it through labor. But that's not the usual way the word saved is used in the New Testament, and we know that not all women survive labor. A more convincing interpretation is that this is a reference to Mary and her giving birth to Christ. Uh, Paul could be thinking of the promise of Genesis 3.15 that the offspring of a woman will bruise the head of Satan and therefore a woman would be saved not through their childbearing but the childbearing of Mary. Well, that's one potential way of translating the Greek. And it's a hopeful way of interpreting this verse because it reminds us that Jesus is our Savior from sin and there is great hope in him. But I think what makes most sense in the context is that Paul is referring to women being saved through their willingness to embrace God's feminine design. What is the most obvious difference between men and women, male and female? Well, it's that woman can bear children. And today, in certain circles, there's a desire to eliminate all gender markers and to refine gender as a Redefine gender as a fluid concept. But there are physical differences between men and women that simply cannot be denied. The most fundamental is that of childbearing. So what I think Paul is doing here is using childbearing as a figure of speech to refer to the differences between men and women. Of course, not all women will bear children in their lives, but all women can embrace God's design of them or for them to be helpers and nurturers and to mother others in a way that is in line with God's intended purpose for them. Well, Paul is saying that when, when when women embrace dressing modestly and submission and, and they embrace being mothers and living lives of faith and love and holiness and self-control, they will give evidence that they have been saved because they have embraced obedience to God's design. The different roles of men and women in the church weren't just something that Paul wanted to address with the ancient church of Ephesus. Embracing God's roles for men and women in his household has bearing on our salvation today. Are we actually willing to submit to God's truth and to his good design for our lives? Or are we going to stubbornly try to do it our way? Uh, Women in the church should engage in the church with a submissive spirit. Nowadays, everyone wants to shoot the three in the big basketball games. But sometimes you're called to pass the ball and set screens. And these things are equally as important to the success of a team. In the church, God has given men and women distinct roles for our good. And in this passage, he is calling us back to the perfect garden of Eden. He's calling us to live the way we were always designed to live, but, but to live it out here and now in the church that has rede- been redeemed by our Savior, Jesus Christ. Men, step up and lead. Live lives of holiness that overflow in prayer. Women, clothe yourselves with good works. Be the best students you can be in the church and embrace all the ways that God has uniquely designed you to impact current, in future generations, with the gospel. Satan is still deceiving our culture today. He's telling us to shoot the ball when we know we shouldn't. But in the church, we need to guard ourselves from being deceived and see God's roles for us as fundamentally good. May we all wholeheartedly accept God's instruction for us as men and women. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us your word, your inspired word. We thank you for giving us clear instructions on how we are to conduct ourselves in your church. And we know that these are are difficult verses in this day and age, but we pray that you would help us as a church to embrace your truth, help men to, to be loving leaders, to be excellent examples of holiness, not abusing their authority but using it lovingly and helpfully for all in the church. We pray for women in the church to, to really embrace their roles, to be helpers and doers of good works and, and supporters and teachers of women and children. We pray that we would be able to see that fleshed out in our church, that we would see the goodness of your design and that we would, we would be a countercultural testimony to the world of, of how men and women can relate in harmony and for the ultimate good of your people. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.